I I am fully convinced the Oscars are not happening next year. Do not edit that out. Welcome to A Century in Cinema. I'm Arthur. I'm Andrew. And this is a podcast where we discuss a classic film from every year, starting in 1920. Today's film is from 1928. King Vidor's The Crowd. It's a fake-out episode. We're not talking about Walt Disney and Steamboat Willie or Mickey Mouse. (laughs) I I do want to just put this in the podcast for the listeners. Uh, I have more or less maneuvered this into my desire for a film I wanted to watch from this year. (laughs) We were originally going to watch um, another Victor Showstrom joint, but it went away from the streaming platform we had. And I have been wanting to watch King Vidor's The Crowd for a long time. It's been on my watch list for a very long time. And when I heard that the film we were replacing it with was Steamboat Willie, I lightly nudged that we should watch <laughs> the crowd. I, I initially said instead, but I'm happy. I'm happy we watched both. And I also know that uh, the crowd was hard to find. Uh, yes, I did have to do some slick maneuvering. MGM does not have a solid history with releasing their older silent classics, which is very, very unfortunate um, because they have a lot of films in the canon so many of them have not even come close to a blue release or are even in consideration for being restored. Um, it's a very unfortunate situation. So if anyone who's working at MGM just happens to listen to this, I don't know, just know that there are people who care and we would like to see those films and we like for them to be accessible to people. There's no reason for these films, which already had to go through so much and had to be lost for such a long amount of time to finally be discovered are now lost again, simply because their company was not able to keep up with technology. But that's the end of that rant. I could go on for days about that. So we're not going to do that. Let's talk about Steamboat Willie for a little bit. Yeah. Steamboat Willie, on the other hand. Steamboat Willie you can find on Disney Plus or just Disney.com. I think I don't I don't think I watched it on Disney Plus. I think I watched it. I watched it on Disney Plus and I would also like to take a moment to talk about this. Because for all I know, this is going to become an antiquated conversation in like three months because they might just fix this. But as of right now, October 2020, Disney, a multi-billion dollar corporation, has easily the weakest streaming service out there. It is horribly organized. It is not intuitive to work with. There is no way of creating any sort of sensible watch list. I know, I, I feel like I'm just complaining a lot in this opening segment, but like, this is seriously <laughs> unacceptable. The people who are working for Disney, who are working on this streaming service, I know for a fact, put a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of resources into this. And for it to look and feel like this, also have a real problem with the fact that they have censored some of their films. Um, this kind of behavior is unacceptable. My tiny little voice against the wind will not do anything with Disney Corporation, but this needs to be stated. Um, so just putting that out there, Disney, you got to up the game. This is too late in the streaming wars to be pulling these kinds of shenanigans. Um, but Steamboat Willie. Oh, Steamboat Willie. So fun. It was really cute. I, I actually had never watched this before, and I thought this was really, really sweet. I totally forgot, but I had seen Steamboat Willie before. 
like my childhood memories started rushing back to me as I watched this little film. Um, and clearly it must have been some sort of feature on uh, some Disney VHS that I had way back when. I had that weird sense of deja vu and then certain scenes and certain just like little motions started coming back to me. It, it's fine, but there's no plot to it. Mickey is the helmsman on a steamboat going up the river. He doesn't like his boss. He gets into some shenanigans. He uh, picks up Minnie at some point. They get into some shenanigans together. They're making music by abusing animals. I thought I I did think that uh, was it was it the pigs? Were they were the they pig, pigs? Well, they're pigs suckling on their uh, that was mother. So weird to me. Like him using pigs suckling on their mother and their whining as his instrument was fine, but then he takes them all off, puts her upside down, and she has a look of like abject distraught like terror on her face like she's been ripped away from her babies and she's upset and he's using her crying out as the instrument and the piglets are sitting on the ground like smiling about it that was weird and then mickey's boss throws him into the kitchen to slice potatoes horrible way to slice potatoes there's like nothing left by the time he's done it's like a tiny little, I'm like, oh my gosh, that you just cut out like 80% of your rations doing that. This gets credited as Mickey's first appearance. And I think that that's probably true to some extent within like cinema or maybe being shown in theaters, but it isn't the first Mickey short. Cause the first Mickey short was plain crazy, which came out earlier that year. And that's plain spelled P L A N E little, little play on words. Um, Have you watched much animation? Like this from the silent era from this time period? I've seen the first Disney short, though, one with the flowers and the trees. Um, what is the name of that film? Um, it's like their first, like, It looks short. like it's just called Flowers and Trees. Is it truly? Killed it. And it's 1932. Uh, oh! Why did I think that was the first one? I have no idea why I thought that. There's a there's a history going back to even before cinema, people projecting what could be considered animated cells in theaters, you know, even before film was invented. If you look at this era, though, I think you can credit something like Gertie the Dinosaur, which is 1914 as the first animation that looks like animation that we would recognize. But there is a lot of stuff that came before that and a lot of it's missing. A lot of it you can't find anywhere yeah there's like a famous um, shadow puppet film or something that's considered even though it's not technically animation there's like animation techniques used in it right right so there's a lot of stuff like that do you know anything about the making of this film how it kind of came to be walt disney uh befriended um dutch immigrant ubi iwerks i'm assuming i'm saying that correctly as people should probably know by this episode i'm i suck at pronouncing names he was a illustrator and he actually designed Mickey Mouse uh based off of what Disney was telling him and they made Plain Crazy and Steamboat Willie together so uh what am I trying to say more of an undercover presence on the creation of what is now like one of I would say it's got to be between Mickey Mouse or Hello Kitty for like the most worldwide recognizable character right right um, I just know that Disney, uh, pretty much conceived all the gags and, like, was writing the scripts. Everks was illustrating them. Uh, I've, of course, there's infamous, um, 
factoid that Walt Disney's scared of mice, and those were like his biggest fear as a kid, and Mickey Mouse is him trying to conquer that. Uh, and then, of course, that his original name was Mortimer, but it was Walt Disney's wife who was like, uh, that's a bad name. His name should be Mickey. Oh, she was right. Inter- I think it's interesting. This is the first film, and I didn't mean for it to be this way, but this is the first film on our list that is a synchronized sound film. So there is more to its backstory there than I expected. Well, they started working on two shorts before Disney realized that film was changing. Film was going in a different direction. After the jazz singer came out, became a big hit, he said, all right, we got to make an animated short with synchronized sound. And Steamboat Willie came about as a response to the jazz singer, essentially. Disney was looking at the changing land. Walt Disney was looking at the changing landscape (laughs) in the film industry and said, we got to get on the ground floor of this. Sound is going to be the next big thing. And our big Mickey Mouse debut has got to be a a synchronized sound short. Um, When they actually got an orchestra together to try to synchronize the sound, it was a lot harder than they expected. And there was uh, fear that it would not come together. Uh, It was an animating ball on screen. I'm trying hard to picture this, but they animated a ball on screen so that the conductor could follow along with the animation. And I imagine that's lost to time. I'm I'm sure we have no idea what that actually looks like. Yeah. Um, Although it was not the first animation with synchronized sound, it was, or it, it just became a huge hit and really launched Disney into the animation studio that we know it today. It's a juggernaut. It is the cognitive dissonance of you saying Disney and meaning like a specific person. It was so funny to me just now when you fixed it and we're like, actually Walt Disney. And I was like, that doesn't really work either. It's so weird to like think that someone's name who was like a person now when it's said is just like this corporate conglomerate. It was just so funny when you were like Disney Walt Disney, and I was like, oh, no, that still doesn't quite get it. Like, <laughs> I did, I was super impressed by all of the matchup. You could tell that you were supposed to watch one hand and not another. There was one part of the drawing that was keeping the beat. I'm sure that's where, like, the ball was or whatever that initially was drawn off of, and that the other hand was just doing something that didn't really match the beat. In fact, when he is strumming the washboard, it goes really far out of rhythm with the music. But I think they just realized it would be more distracting to keep in rhythm with the music and not have the sound match up with the image than mm-hmm. try and find an alternative. But I thought that was interesting. I was like, oh, I know that was not intentional it's Like for him to be playing the washboard. And it just completely is out of sync with the rest of the music. <laughs> so that was interesting. Obviously, they would go on to perfect those methods in Fantasia, which is still one of the most incredible feats in animation to this day. Yeah, an amazing film. Really quick. Did you get the review I sent from oh, yeah, Variety yeah. for Steamboat Willie? Let me pull that up. It's really short. Variety likes the film. They say that the audience that they saw it with was laughing the whole time, giggling the whole time that, yeah, people just really responded to this film. And you can, you know, a lot of people thought sound was a gimmick and something like Steamboat Willie kind of makes it seem like sound might be a gimmick because 
the story and the characters not important. It's all about Mickey just playing instruments and making funny noises and stuff like that. I laughed out loud when he cranked the tail and turned it into like a <laughs> vibraphone. That was so funny to me. I did laugh out loud when he picked up the cat by the tail and swung it around because I just was not expecting that at that all. That was good. It's that so was good. <laughs> it's uh, morbid, but uh, yeah. Is there anything else we want to discuss concerning Steamboat Willie? Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning that Steamboat Willie and Mickey Mouse in general are the reason that American copyright law is so mm, weird. Originally, when the copyright law was put into effect, like in the Constitution, it was only supposed to stay with the author for 14 years, which seems very, very short by today's standards. The author had the property under their control for 14 years, and they could extend that for another 14 years. So 28, essentially. Um, In 1909, that was doubled by Congress. So you had the property for 28 years, and then you could extend it for another 28 years. The whole idea of this is that you as an author, as a someone creating something, some creative work, incentivized to be able to own it and use it for your own gain in a reasonable amount of time. And then eventually it would go into the public domain so that the rest of the public could also benefit from it and use it to their advantage. That is through many, many different iterations been extended to, I I don't even know what it is now. It's something really. Well, and there's so many loopholes now too. There are so many different loopholes. Now at this point, they have copyright over certain stories as long as they continually release films based on those stories and like copyright the names of them in those films, which is one of the reasons we get these live action remakes. Mm -hmm. It's all so complicated now. Copyright protection extends 70 years after the death of the artist or 95 years for corporate creations. Um, And that's why uh, in the Mickey Mouse interpretation in Steamboat Willie is under the Disney control. It's sort of a new phenomenon that a lot of these films we've been watching up to this point have been slowly trickling into the public domain. Because for a long time, because of all of these extensions that Congress was granting Uh, Basically, because of Disney wanting to keep control of Mickey Mouse, a lot of films and a lot of work was not passing into the public domain, even though it should have. So just recently, just within the past, you know, few years, we've gotten things like Thief of Baghdad in the public domain, Safety Last, Within Our Gates, these films that you can now watch without having to, you know, pay a streaming service. Other work like The Great Gatsby has also passed into the public domain just Mm. barely. Um... And there's some debate, you know, it's coming up January 1st, 2024. That's when Steamboat Willie is scheduled to enter the public domain. And we don't know how that's going to look. Disney might lose control of this version of Mickey Mouse and still control the rest of them. Uh, Or they might lobby Congress and get copyright extension push back even further they haven't signaled that they are going to be doing any heavy lobbying not yet anyway it's still four years away as of recording i'm very curious what's going to happen because this has been a fight that's been going on since like the 50s like since the 70s that disney's been able to lobby congress to get copyright 
extended and extended and extended. Um, so it seems almost inevitable that they'll do it again, but we might get some leeway. I'll eat my words in three years. Yeah, they'll, they'll find a way, man. But hopefully, that'd be awesome. Um, I guess at this point, it's a fake out of a fake out because we actually did do an episode on Steamboat Willie just now. <laughs> but I am ready to get into King Vidor's The Crowd. We need to talk about King Vidor's The Crowd. Uh, did you like it? Oh, I loved this, man. Okay, cool. This is right up my alley. Um, I, I do want to give a quick... I'll be I'll be referencing this a lot anyways. So I want to just talk about Eric von Stronheim's Creed really quickly. So people who haven't seen it know, Creed is a film that came out four years before The Crowd. And one of the reasons it was considered such an anomaly is because it is such a huge criticism of capitalism in America and such a huge criticism of the pursuit of money equating the pursuit of happiness. Is a very, very dark film with a very dark ending, uh, and that is maintained through every cut of the film. Uh, not only did it not do well financially because it was so expensive, but it also received mostly negative reviews from people who thought it was very pessimistic and did not find its perspective to be enlightening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, when you watch that film today, it feels completely prophetic. And... King Vidor, with it being from the same studio and everything, there's zero question that he saw that film. And while it's not listed as an official uh, inspiration for him, it clearly is for the crowd, which is a very similar concept. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and do a brief synopsis here. Go for it. So our main character, John Sims, is born on the 4th of July. He is raised to believe that he can... Uh, become one of the people who can change the country. He goes to New York with lofty ambitions, meets a woman who he falls in love with. They get married. They have two kids. And all of a sudden, the American dream starts to unravel. And one of their children dies in an accident. It drives him to attempt suicide. They end up getting past that. His wife attempts to leave him, but he uh, is able to convince her to go to a show with them that night. and. The final shot is the camera panning away, and our main characters are lost in the crowd of people who are laughing at the spectacle on stage, showing that they are no more significant or grand than anybody else. This this film is incredible as far as its form. That crane shot up the building that goes through the window, just it's it's considered one of those iconic moments in cinema, and you really can see why. I do believe that he would have had to have seen Metropolis as well to a certain extent. I don't have any proof of that, but it just feels like Metropolis, as far as the way it's shot, has some sort of influence on this. Isn't it weird that allegedly Fritz Long was inspired by the city of New York to make his city in Metropolis, and then allegedly King Vidor is inspired by Metropolis for his depiction of New York in this film? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> crazy snake eating its own tail for sure i mean i feel like i've seen that shot so many times before replicated in other films and i couldn't even name what those are it just feels like it's ingrained in cinematic language for how you show one man sort of blending into this rigid machine that he's working 
Yeah, I mean, even the Matrix, you know, it like it, that cubicle yeah. shot overhead. Yeah. It's also interesting, this film is one of the first to, like, use New York as an actual physical location they filmed in as a huge centerpiece. They would hide cameras in places for some of the shots. Even the main character is played by somebody who was only an extra in films before and was considered a nobody. Jean-Luc Godard infamously said, uh, when asked why more films aren't made about ordinary people, he said the crowd has already been made, so why remake it? I do think this film does an incredible job at showing people who... Of that American, like, projector, you know, I'm going to be this super successful person. He does everything right at his job. He's going in every day. He gets a very minimal raise over five years and never gets the promotion he's promised. Um, he quits in a fit of rage while he's in a depression over his child being dead. And uh, then he's offered these other jobs and he can't take them because of this or that. It all comes down to his pride. Mm-hmm. This John Sims has too much pride. It's a huge character flaw. He's not a model character. Uh, he's got good aspects about him, but he's got really horrible aspects about him as well. He finds it difficult to take responsibility for things. He finds it difficult to swallow his pride and accept the world as it is. But at the same time, he does have a good work ethic to a certain extent. And he also is good for his wife once they get past their tip. And he's good with their kids as well. There are these aspects of him that make him into a solid character who it feels like would be almost pure if it weren't for this corruption of capitalism that has been eating at his brain since he was literally a child. When he's born, his parents say this is a child that the whole world will hear and the whole world will see. And that's them, you know, putting the, their most of their hopes in their child, but it's also putting the weight of the world on their child. And that weight seems to weigh on him over time. Yeah, I loved this movie. It feels like they're making him into this sort of epic hero in this story. I mean, he's born in the year 1900 on the 4th of July, and he he keeps talking about presidents and success and you you just feel like uh he's meant for something more or he thinks that he's meant for something more and obviously that's all kind of gone to his head and i'll be honest with you as i was watching the crowd i wasn't in love with it i thought a lot of its symbolism and a lot of its themes were really on the nose but then by the end when john was having that moment where he might have to leave mary and he's begging her to stay, I realized that I actually did love these characters. Even though I, I knew these characters were symbols, even though I knew they were only there to kind of represent what that American dream was supposed to look like, I, I still loved them. I still felt so sorry for them in the situation that they had fallen into. And it is interesting how they do start off as like the classic example of America. And you aren't even, you are not keen, I don't think, early on to know that this is going to all corrupt and blow up in their face. You don't really know that's where it's going to head at first. It gets so dark. So yeah. Dark. First, I thought it was really... I really thought they were just horrible people, mainly just in that scene where they were on top of the bus making fun of what the juggler was doing for work and stuff. I was like, oh, man. Uh, and and I, sh I should have been keen on it earlier, because that one intertitle... I did laugh at it, but that one intertitle killed me of... Uh, it's like John moved to New York to become one of the 7 million people who thinks they're going to be the one that makes a difference or something. Right. 
Right. It's it's a very early intertitle, and I was like, huh, cheeky. But I didn't think too much of it. And then by the end, I was like, oh, that's that was the whole point of the movie, right there in that one intertitle. Her family, his in-laws, uh, you don't understand really why he hates them at first. And I mean, they, they are way overly critical to an almost comical extent of yeah. him. Yeah. But you're sort of like, oh, he's kind of overreacting by just fully leaving the party and getting drunk instead of like staying with his wife. But then you realize this family is representative of that pressure of America to be the best, to like carve you down until you're what this country wants you to be. And he has, he feels he needs to actively resist that, even though he does want it at the same time. I'll tell you though, I felt really bad for Mary. Like we're seeing the story through John's perspective, but this is still a 1920s film told from the perspective of a white man. And even though you feel bad for him, I think Mary's, there's another interesting film in here that's all told from Mary's perspective that is even more tragic in its own way. That fight scene of him blaming everything on her and criticizing her. Oh, God. Unable to take responsibility for himself. That's, see, that's, that's where I'm so happy there isn't subtlety to that extent. Because at that point, I'm so happy that he is like this representation of the uh, chase of the American dream and she's represented as its victim because there really is this like nothing you can do can be wrong because if you do something wrong it'll be a slippery slope and you won't be able to recover best thing to do is just not take responsible for anything you spill milk on yourself it's because your wife didn't tell you it was full yeah I agree that Mary is like this crazy victim of all of it she's completely at the whims of it her family is the representation of the pressure of America, and they try to take her back and are not supportive of her marriage. Her husband is the representation of the chase of the ideal, and he underappreciates her and criticizes her and treats her like dirt sometimes. And that beach scene, too, was so good of him just, like, chilling back and playing music while she's just struggling to keep things together. <sighs> yeah, that final... And also, there were seven different... Allegedly, there were seven different endings made for this film because the original one they considered too depressing. It, it has been... These are, these are difficult details in 2020 to hammer out. But it seems as though the ending that you and I both watched with the crowd being the big final shot and us losing them in it is the original ending. However, one of the seven endings is also allegedly... Him being left by his wife, descending into alcoholism, and dying. So, it feels weird to think that MGM would be like, oh, your ending's too sad, we gotta make another one, and then they make a worse one. (laughs) So, I'm not sure what the original ending was. Um, I know that it was released with two endings. The one that we saw is considered the canonical ending that the studio went with because it seemed to resonate with people better, but the other ending that was released was a much happier, optimistic ending of them all being around a Christmas tree, being a family again, and laughing. Which does not seem to fold into the themes very well. So <laughs> Typical studio-mandated sort of <laughs> yeah. patch job. Yeah, this film has a lot to say. It feels like it's coming from a place of frustration and insecurity. And it does feel like it's just trying to tell a story about somebody who Hollywood does not want to touch yet. It does feel like it's telling the story of this common man. The sad part about this whole story is that the actor who would play uh, John Sims, James Murray, 
ended up descending into alcoholism himself and dying. But King Vidor offered him a role in a film when he saw him homeless on the street. They had a very negative altercation. Uh, James Murray does not seem to be very appreciative of what happened to him post the crowd. King Vidor wanted to make a film about him and his life, but that never came to pass. Um, and it's just very sad because it seems like his life sort of reflected that of uh, Sims to a certain extent. Yeah, when I read that too, it almost seemed too perfect. Yeah. Have you ever seen the Beaver Trilogy by Trent Harris? No, I don't know. I haven't then. So the Beaver Trilogy, I'm not going to spoil too much because it's a film people should just watch. And it's all on YouTube, on Trent Harris's YouTube profile. Like, he doesn't want to make money off this movie anymore. But that film is an analyzation of Trent Harris's grief and remorse over exposing this person who probably was not ready for exposure. And the guilt he's racked with because of the repercussions it had on this kid's life. Even though I'm sure it's completely coincidental, it ties into... King Vidor and his relationship with uh, James Murray and the crowd. And like, this is one of the lower budget films we've watched recently. We've been watching a lot of really crazy high budget films and it was not expected to be a huge success. And then it wasn't a huge success, but then it slowly started to gain traction and people started to realize that this was, you know, cinema and that this was where the art form could go. And, James Murray ended up sort of being at the front of it and he was not prepared or ready for that. Yeah. I, and I told you this as I started watching the crowd, I totally forgot that we were still in the silent era. There's something about the crowd that seems so forward thinking. Yes. And even the way that the characters are talking to each other and telling jokes feels like something that should belong in a film with sound. Because up until now, we've gotten so much slapstick or visual comedy, but this is kind of a clever play on words or sort of callbacks to earlier in the film. There's just something about it that does seem like it's ahead of its time in so many ways. Yeah, I would completely agree. Um, This film achieves a lot visually without having to put stuff into words necessarily. Mm Mm-hmm. One of my favorite scenes was when he was crying and trying to tell everyone in the town to be quiet so that his daughter could sleep, not really having come to terms with the fact that she was dead yet. Yeah. That was, that was incredible. I couldn't, I couldn't believe I was watching that. That feels like the most human moment we've had in a movie so far of the ones we've watched. Yeah. So much of the acting in a lot of these films has been theatrical and overstated and there's, there's room for that. I really like that kind of stuff, but yeah, we are moving into the subtle, underplayed acting that we'll become more familiar with as sound starts to dominate film. Mm. Not only ahead of its time, like cinematically, but ahead of its time with how it's thinking about the American economy. 1928 is the year right before the stock market crash, which begins in New York city and radiates out to affect the entire world. And there's something about John Sims going to this heart of capitalism in the 1920s and thinking that he's destined for greatness and everything's going to be great and then just falling on his face and all these tragic things happening to him uh that seems so prophetic i liked that yeah absolutely king vidor uh 
had a very prolific career. He's considered one of the helmers of the American epic, uh, starting with this film, actually. One of his infamous projects, it was uh, his second to last feature, uh, is his adaptation of War and Peace, um, which is the only other film of his I've actually seen. Even though I prefer the Russian version, which was made as a reaction to that, there is no denying the scope of that film and how well crafted all the battle scenes are and the film as a whole. He just very infamously does not have villains in his films. Hmm. He really likes to focus on as close to the common man as he can, and he loves to focus on people who are struggling within their society's rigidity, and it's just incredible that those were all major themes of his work throughout his career, and even though this wasn't his first film, it's one of them, and it really did sort of kick off all those themes within his career. I love that his voice in cinema is still accessible today. And that this film is, you know, even though it's difficult to find, it's not dead. It's not gone. It hasn't been burned or anything. And it is crazy to think that, I mean, I I don't really know exactly how all this went down film by film. But I do know MGM was one of the big studios that was like, oh, you're making a silent film. You've got to make it a talkie now. Like, they were really, they were really one of the main production companies doing that to their films. Hmm. And so it's just crazy to me that this one, they were like, no, that one can stay silent. Like, I don't know. It, it's so, it's so, I'm happy. I'm so happy that that happened because I would have hated to have seen, uh, what would have happened in this film. I don't think it would have been the same. So Joseph von Sternberg's first, uh, sound feature, Thunderbolt. He is a visual master, especially if you watch his early silent films, but there is just this one ugly, boring dud in his filmography right as the sound era hit in 1929. And it's because the studio said, this has to be a talkie now. He had a very limited time left. He had a limited budget and he had no idea how to shoot with microphones. So even though he was so inspired by German expressionism and was making all of these beautiful films and was the master at that time of lighting, it's just this one ugly movie that everything is just straight on. It's all medium shots. There is no flavor, nothing distinct going on in it. If you were to show that to someone as their first Joseph von Sternberg film, they would have no idea what he was about or why he was considered a big deal. And I'm so, so grateful that um, the crowd isn't a situation like that because this this movie more than deserves to exist as it does. I'll link to the Variety review from 1928. <laughs> For the crowd, it is completely unfair, but I think it's a good indication of how people initially responded to this film. The reviewer says multiple times that it's too long. And I'll tell you, we've watched other films just in our list that were way longer and way more unbearable than the crowd. Oh, yeah. And just for and just for the people listening who maybe haven't seen it, this movie is ninety eight minutes long and does not, in my opinion, I guess it's, it's subjective, but it does not drag. There is not a single scene that does not fully propel the plot, the story, or the metaphor forward in some way. It, so uh, yeah, this this review is hysterical to me. I read this yesterday, right after I finished the film. I mean, as soon as I started reading it, I was like, what? This is not what I just experienced at all. So the New York Times did review it better than this. So there were other people that 
might have enjoyed it more, but the reception was still kind of lukewarm. This is still unfair. Oh my gosh, what's my favorite quote from this uh, that actually references the endings? Um, Another print must have been in use, as others who saw the next unreeling mentioned a different finale. If they are trying out two finishes, the one that will leave the film the shorter should be selected. (laughs) So he doesn't even, like, care about the quality of the film or the ending or anything. He's just like, it just needs to be shorter. He's stuck on that. Did he just not get his coffee before he watched this? <laughs> it's hysterical to me that he is so hung up on an hour and a half long film. Yeah, the review's silly. And when I read this, I was like, oh my gosh, perfect. Because it made me think of all the horrible reviews that Greed got once it was released of people saying that it felt so drab, so hopeless, it felt so lifeless. Do you think people at this time period were so whirled up in the idea of American optimism that seeing something that critiqued it was borderline offensive to them yeah it's sort of like the hg wells review that we had with metropolis i do think that there's some sort of aspect of pride wrapped up in a lot of these responses that any sort of criticism of the status quo at this time you know the 1920s when things seemed so optimistic was just met with so much pushback Mm -hmm. it's impossible from our perspective in 2020 to not think that looking back because if this film had come out in 1931 everyone would love it would be acclaimed yeah highly acclaimed yeah that's yeah yeah and that is funny i hadn't really thought about that hg wells review in comparison but yeah that's ridiculous i would also just like to say 1928 incredible year for film mainly talking about uh the last command starring Emil Jannings. It is a Joseph von Sternberg film. It is one of his greatest silent achievements. Um, it is it is this incredible, visceral film that is all about a country rejecting its leader and rising up against it. It is considered one of the greatest silent films of all time. Then you also have The Passion, Passion of, of Joan, Joan of Arc, yeah. directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer, widely considered to be the excellence of silent cinema. Like, and people don't say that lightly. These are like scholars who are like silent film hit its absolute peak with passion of Joan of Arc, right when the medium was about to die. And it is not a lie. That movie is incredible. Uh, it is almost entirely just close up to this one person and you're just watching her suffer for an hour and a half. It is such a gorgeous, aching film i can confirm the passion of jonah park is a very good film (laughs) but it is not a good date night film no no (laughs) i would also like to just go ahead and confirm that anytime i call anything a great film you should automatically assume it's not a good date night film (laughs) oh i was also going to say buster keaton's the cameraman came out that year which is it's his film that compares shooting a film to shooting a gun a monkey it's it's there's so many layers to this joke, Arthur. It's one of my favorite jokes in silent cinema. Yeah, nineteen nineteen twenty eight. I'm sure there are a million more that I missed that people are gonna be like, that's the best movie of nineteen twenty eight. But yeah, it is. I mean, it's sort of the end of silent cinema, so it does feel like this culmination of things. But I'm I'm so happy to have finally seen the crowd, and I really do think it is just as good. Like it belongs in that pantheon of great silent films that came out right at the end of the era. Yeah. 1928. What do you want to know about 1928? 
What was going on in the world? You, you know what, Arthur? I have a feeling you already have some stuff lined up for me. Ooh, I do have some stuff lined up. <laughs> I want to know whatever you want to tell me. The Soviet Union is starting its first five-year plan. These were ambitious five-year plans for economic growth. They don't go very well. Um, the Kellogg Brand Pact. I didn't know anything about this because, well, you'll see. The Kellogg Brand Pact is a pact signed by many nations around the world to outlaw war. It is a very optimistic, pacifist, pie-in-the-sky sort of deal that everyone's agreeing we're going to solve our problems by not going to war. And it worked. As as we know, <laughs> it worked. <laughs> It was formulated by America and France, signed by Germany. Oh, Lord. The main the main pillars. <laughs> so with sound coming into filmmaking, I feel like everything changes. We've heard this before. Film itself is going to become a lot more expensive to make. Before this, a lot more people could make films. I feel like there was more diversity in filmmaking. And as soon as you get synchronized sound as soon as you have to distribute things to theaters that have sound wired in it starts to become dominated by big money and the studio system will begin to take over everything rko is founded this year becomes one of the big five studios uh and they are responsible for many films that i love king kong one of the best that's not 39 that's 30 33 33, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, cinema moving forward becomes dominated by big money in the studio system. And of course, we'll get into that as we move forward in our century in cinema. Ooh, that's the Ooh, title of the show. That's the title of the show. <laughs> <laughs> so next week, we are watching Pandora's Box, 1929. It's still a silent film. It is from Germany. Um... And it is available to watch on the Criterion channel, and I will link in the show notes where you can watch it as well. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Nathan Royal for making our show's music. If you're enjoying A Century in Cinema, we would love if you took a second to help support the show. You can do that by subscribing, giving us those ratings so that we can get those internet algorithms, and to recommend us to someone else who likes movies and someone else who's looking for a new podcast. Thanks a lot, and we will have a new episode next week. 